in the morning. When you want the news, you need the front page every hour on the press box. Nothing's writing on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. And now, the news. The Yankees beat the Mets 4-2 last night. That is two straight wins over the Mets. Adam, the Yankees are back. They're winning games again, just like the Josh Donaldson Grand Slam. This is going to turn the regular season around. They were never as good as they were early in the year, and they were never as bad as when they lost 14 of 17. They're a good team, not a great team. They are the second best team in the American League, and they will be fine come the playoffs to lose to someone they shouldn't lose to. <laughs> All right. Which play was worse during yesterday's game? The labor one... Torres. Don't even go through it. <laughs> no, like, I'm not letting you even get to the second example you want to use here of Pete Alonso dropping a pop-up. No. Glaber Torres had a brain lock. And if you want to get on me for saying that, that's what Michael K., the Yankees announcer, called it. A brain lock in which Pete Alonso stumbled coming around third base while there was also a runner coming around second and was basically dead to rights. And then Glaber Torres happened to notice that Jeff McNeil was off second. There was nobody to cover second. So Glaber's choice was to completely ignore the runner at third and try to run to second base to tag out McNeil, which he had no chance of doing, and also let Alonso score to tie the game. It was one of the strangest plays I've ever seen, but it is also well, well within the range of what Glaber Torres does on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, Pete Alonso had a fun day. He was involved in this play where he tripped around third and Glaber Torres, what did you call Brain lock? Is that what you called it? Yes. Okay, brain lock. He dropped a pop-up down the first baseline. He also snapped his bat over his leg after striking out. Big day for Pete Alonso. Yeah, tough guy breaking his bat over his knee. My favorite part was that the bat didn't break clean, and so it only broke to, like, what, like a 45-degree angle, and then he had to take his hands and, like, do the rest of it and kind of twist it, and then little shards came off and everything. Like, dude, if you can't do it clean, then don't do it at all. That's the worst thing about being angry and trying to break something is when it doesn't break. Like, that's it, just, then you're just even more angry, and you just feel like an idiot. Yeah, when you think to yourself, like, hey... I can take out this whole wall of my house in like one second, and yet it only puts a big dent in it. Only a hole, Adam. My car only put a hole in the house. Didn't yes, what I'm saying. You didn't down. go nearly as far as you intended. That's a great, great question. Pete Carroll must really like Geno Smith and Drew Locke because he gave the quote yesterday, we may have two number ones, referring to his quarterbacks. Do the Seahawks have any number one quarterbacks? You know what happens when you have two number ones, Tyler? You've got number two. <laughs> That's what happens. Add them up together, and you've got two. That's what you have when you have Drew Locke and Geno Smith. He can't be serious, man. I, I would almost rather you you just go the Marcus Arroyo shutdown route of being like, <laughs> yeah, we don't know. We're just not sure, as opposed to like, they're both really they're number one quarterbacks. Hey, 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 okay. You don't want to tell us who's going to start, fine. Do the football coach thing. Don't tell us who's going to start. But please don't try to blow the smoke to tell us the two guys who we have seen more than enough of in the NFL to know who they are, our number one quarterbacks when they're not. So I like take the Carolina Panthers, for example, they went and traded for Baker Mayfield. And I kind of don't understand why they would do that, because from an organization standpoint, 
he takes them to what a six win team or something like that, which is not going to be good enough to get a top two or three pick, but also isn't going to be anywhere close to the postseason. And I think that's relatively dumb, but I think this, it comes down to coaches. When you compare Carolina and Seattle, Matt rules, trying to save his job there and six wins sounds better than two wins. Right. And there's a, I guess a slightly better chance that they have a magical season to make the postseason. but Seattle, I, I guess I'm a little surprised they didn't go after Baker Mayfield or Jimmy Garoppolo, just given Pete Carroll's age. Like, it doesn't feel like he would be completely on board for, hey, let's tank for a season and then figure it out because how long is Pete Carroll going to be the coach in Seattle? If you know what the Seattle Seahawks are doing, step to the front of the line. (laughs) Because when you trade Russell Wilson, you're signaling to everyone it's time to blow it up and rebuild. But yet they kept Pete Carroll, which, again, is archaic thinking that a guy who bases everything on getting 50% runs is going to win anything. And then you bring in Drew Locke as part of the trade. It it doesn't make any sense at all. And the Seattle Seahawks look destined for one of the worst seasons in the NFL. But the problem is probably not worst enough to get past the teams that are going to be really, really bad and get to the top for the best quarterback you can get. Next question. Nick Saban is signing a new contract with Alabama, an eight-year deal worth nearly $94 million. That will pay Nick Saban $11.7 million per season. Uh, Do we still do the, how much do the athletes get of that with NIL in place? We do it in this format because we're on Las Vegas Sports Radio. Nick Saban just became the highest paid player on the Golden Knights. (laughs) That Okay, it is always one of the most amazing things when you see NHL player contracts and compare them to any other of our major sports, and I actually love this one a lot, that Nick Saban is higher paid than, what is there, maybe like two hockey players that make more than $11.7 million per year? Like NFL coaches and college coaches basically get paid the exact same amount as hockey players do. It's incredible how little that sport actually pays its best players. Next question. Chargers cornerback JC Jackson had ankle surgery. He is going to be out two to four weeks. Game one of the season against the Raiders is two and a half weeks from now. The Chargers signed JC Jackson to the free agent in the offseason away from the Patriots. He was one of their significant moves they made this year. Um, I guess two to four weeks to me implies that JC Jackson, at least at some point, will be back and will be fine, will be a great cornerback for the Chargers. But potentially, how big of an impact do you think this has on week one if he's not there against the Raiders? These decisions for Brandon Staley and really for every NFL head coach, Tyler, I think are really difficult because of the fact that you already know by the way last season ended and by the way this season shapes up that the Raiders and the Chargers are in the same boat and they are going to be competing for the same spot. And last year they were separated by about three seconds of football time. So J.C. Jackson missing week one against the Raiders. Yeah, ultimately he's probably going to miss the game because how many guys do you see come back from any sort of surgery that quickly? But it's got to be tempting if you're Brandon Staley to want to put your absolute best lineup out there because come week 18, even week one against the Raiders is going to matter a lot. Right. It's just like we talked about with the Patriots, and I know you're not a believer in that team, but these are the games like all all the games matter. But like these are the ones that you might look back and that might determine the tiebreaker. That might determine, you know, if you go to the playoffs or not, or if you need a tie or a win on the final week of the season. That'd be fun if we got that again. But 
these are the types of games that are going to matter that much when you have an AFC that is going to be so competitive for the seven playoff spots is what do you do against the other teams that are probably competing for those wild card spots or in this case for the division and potentially for the wild card spots and simply not having JC Jackson could be something that is significant, especially when you consider that all of a sudden the Raiders have Devonte Adams out there. So who is covering Adams, Renfro and Waller? JC Jackson would be a big help on at least one of those guys, if not all three over the course of an entire game. Man, you know, that's a great question. All right, Jared, this one is specifically in here for you. Thank you. Udonis Haslam is returning to the Miami Heat. It will be his 20th season in the NBA. For six straight years, he has played less than 20 games. He is essentially a coach that wears a uniform and about nine times a season runs out in garbage time for 90 seconds. It's the dream. (laughs) Is it the dream? I modeled my entire basketball-like play after Udonis Haslip. Which is what? Fight people and get rebounds? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. No running. I got, I got pointy elbows. Let's, let's do this. So Udonis Haslam, uh, player, coach. I guess his main job is to just decide who to agree with when Eric Spolster and Jimmy Butler get mad at each other. I think he's there so that if Jimmy Butler tries to fight Eric Spolstra, <laughs> Udonis Haslam is there to go, no, little man. What happens if Udonis agrees with Jimmy Butler, though? What he happens goes, if he's like, yo, Jimmy's making some good points? He probably goes, I agree with you, but don't come after my guy. <laughs> I have a quick question for Adam Candy, because I think I know your answer. Adam, who did you model your basketball style after? Oh, this is an easy one. I want you, in fact, because you asked this question, I think you have an idea. I want you guys to answer first. I mean, if I had to guess who you did, I would go with, did Steve Kerr ever play for the Knicks? I don't think he Steve did. Steve Kerr did not play for the Knicks, but you are you are very far off. Uh, Tyler, any, any ideas? He's far off with Steve Kerr. Were you tall in middle school? Yes. Patrick Ewing? No. Um... Multiple times because of my intensity for rebounding and defense and what I was told by other players was a sharpness to my elbows. Uh, I actually was called in the middle of a game, Bill Lambeer. Okay, yeah. Lambeer. Nice. That's that's good. Wait, 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 wait. Was that a like compliment from your coach or was that an insult from the other team? That was an insult from the other team. Um, I'm going to tell you what my high school coach once called me during a summer league game. Are you ready for this? Uh, I'll warn you, uh, listener, if you're easily offended, you might want to pass on this one. Um, I got an unexpected loose ball at the top of the key, and it was pretty much a sprint down the court unopposed if I wanted it. I had to be able to dribble down the court for an unopposed layup. Three quarters of the court. Not really my strength. Uh, got to about the <laughs> other free throw line, realized this wasn't going to happen, and passed the ball off. Got into a huddle uh, right after that, and the coach goes through the entire spiel in the huddle and then looks at me and goes, Hey, Candy, don't ever do that again. You look like a crippled gorilla out there. <laughs> Did he want you to not ever dribble again? Maybe not more than once or twice. <laughs> like basically long enough. I, like if you were doing like the, you know, like dribble handoff and set the screen, like you can take that one really awkward big man dribble and then give the ball up. That is 
hilarious because I was told, Jared, do not dribble. You are not allowed to dribble. I So Udonis Haslam in the last six years has not played 20 games in a season. Do you think he's dribbled 20 times in a season over this the last is, six years? This is, that should have been the first bite. <laughs> How many times has Udonis Haslam dribbled in six years? Yeah, that would have been a great poll. All right, How Tyler. Oh, go we ahead. Need, no, I was just going to say, like, why is Synergy not on this? We Like, Synergy could get this information <laughs> for us. Dribbles by Udonis Haslam. It's an important stat. Before we move on, Tyler, who did you model your game after? I mean, you know the answer, right? I want to say Allen Iverson. Oh, no. No, it's Reggie Miller. Of course it's Reggie Miller. Okay. I've never stepped foot in Indiana, but was a Pacers fan growing up because of Reggie Miller. I'm out. Gus Edwards will miss the first four games of the season. He was added to the pup list. Nobody can come back until week five after being added to the pup list right now. J.K. Dobbins, uh, their other number one or two running back, is coming back from a torn ACL, but is expected to be ready for week one. Adam, it's a good thing the Ravens have a running back at quarterback. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> I just wanted to let you know that. Coming up next, <laughs> Marcus Arroyo doesn't like to recruit Las Vegas. And here we go. High end over end kick. It'll be taken at the one yard line by Steve Jenkins, who brings it out to the 15. And the ball is loose on the field. Looks like Air Force has it. So the Rebels have fumbled the opening kickoff. And that's the way this one starts. Back to the Press Box Summer Edition, featuring Adam Candy. Later in the show, we got Luke Bryan tickets. Jason Fitz is going to join us at 830. We'll also hear from Ed Graney, live from the Raiders joint practice with the Patriots at 9 o'clock. Coming up this weekend, UNLV kicks off the football season on Saturday. They take on Idaho State to start the year. You can hear that game right here on ESPN Las Vegas as UNLV plays in week zero of the season. Um, but story in the Las Vegas Sun by uh, 7-Eleven hero Mike Gramala um, about <laughs> Marcus Arroyo, his staff, and UNLV recruiting Las Vegas. UNLV does have five scholarship players on the roster that went to high school in Las Vegas. But according to local coaches, Marcus Arroyo doesn't actually recruit very much in Vegas. I'll read a couple of the notes from this story. Uh, one coach whose program has produced four D1 players since Arroyo took over said a UNLV assistant had only visited one practice game or workout during that time. Another coach whose program has produced five D1 players said no UNLV coaches had been to his school during that time, and he had yet to speak directly with Marcus Arroyo. Uh, when asked how a coach would characterize UNLV's local recruiting efforts, another coach said he had never seen less interest from the hometown school, quote, the worst in my life in Vegas. A coach with five D1 prospects over the last three years said the last UNLV coach to come out to his school was Tony Sanchez and that he had not yet heard from Marcus Arroyo. Obviously, not a great look for Marcus Arroyo when you have football coaches across Las Vegas saying that, hey, he just doesn't contact us, doesn't come and, and visit us. We have no relationship with Marcus Arroyo. 
UNLV has still had good recruiting rankings, though, under Marcus Arroyo. That is yet to translate to wins on the field. I think they're hoping that it finally does this season. How big of a deal is it to you that Marcus Arroyo is not recruiting locally? It's a big deal in terms of his overall understanding of the job and what it means for for UNLV football to be part of the fabric of the community, right? It's one thing if you recruit and don't bring in a lot of players. It's another thing, you know, if you have that presence and yet you're not winning the guys you want to win because you can look at a program like a Bishop Gorman that Tony Sanchez obviously came from and had connections to that has produced consistently high-level Division One players. And this city has really been a city that even since I covered prep sports 20 years ago in Las Vegas, probably was turning out at least a half dozen Division One players per year. So you know, here's the quote that Marcus Arroyo gave uh, to Mike Gramala in the article. Quote, we haven't shied away from getting involved in what's local and who's where and what guys we've got, Arroyo said. We've had opportunities for guys to come see us too. We've had coaching clinics and things like that that have really opened the doors to whoever can come. That, to me, doesn't sound like someone who has any remorse or second thought about the fact that he's ignored Las Vegas, right? That does not say, like, oh, yeah, you know, well, we've been in on some guys and, you know, we'll, we'll continue to be in on it. It's like, yeah, we, uh, we gave him a chance to come see us and they didn't, they didn't take it. Right. That like, quote. That, that's the problem. That quote is very much uh, it's their job to talk to me, not my job to talk to them, is basically what Marcus Arroyo is saying with that quote. They have my number. They can call me if they want to. So here's the thing. I, it does not matter where the players went to high school on UNLV's roster, right? UNLV can win games without having a single Las Vegas local on the roster. And Marcus Arroyo, again, by recruiting rankings, has done a good job recruiting at UNLV. We have yet to see anything on the field suggest that that's actually going to translate, but simply by the recruiting rankings, he's done a good job without hitting Las Vegas uh, very hard. So, I'm not too concerned with how many Las Vegas kids are on the UNLV roster or anything like that. I'm not even if if we were told, hey, Arroyo's, you know, just not very interested in very many of the players that are at Las Vegas high schools. I wouldn't even be too concerned with that. To me, it's more about the fact that he has no relationship with the coaches in Las Vegas. Like when you have coaches being like, I've never talked to him directly. The last one I saw was Tony Sanchez. Uh, there was an assistant coach that came one time in the last three years. That, to me, is the bigger issue, that he has zero relationship relationships with uh, coaches in Las Vegas. So if, if there was a point where Marcus Arroyo wanted a player from Las Vegas or, or wanted a player from a certain school, how does he get that? He's basically recruiting just like if he was from a different state that had never talked to one of these coaches before and just dropped in for a visit and was like, hey, I'm interested in that kid. Well, who are you? That, to me, is the bigger concern. And like you said, maybe not understanding exactly what needs to happen for him to be the head coach at UNLV. I think it's a great point, by the way, Tyler, of what happens when that one kid comes along that you really do want to be in on. And it's interesting because so much of what we talk about in sports and especially in football is between confidence and arrogance. And there's a really hard line for coaches in particular to walk when it comes to confidence. You have to display the confidence that recruits are going to want to be gravitating toward. But yet at the same time, 
if you go too far with it, it becomes arrogance. And the way he's approaching recruiting locally, to me, te- it drifts more toward the arrogant side. Right? It drifts more toward the side of saying, yeah, well, whatever. It's fine. I'm good. I got it. Well, no, you don't. You're 2-16. and 16. Like, You don't. And so what's interesting to me is that you know, another guy that I think has taken that, uh, that hit before, Tyler, is Brent Brennan at San Jose State. And we know that Marcus Arroyo and Brent Brennan are very close. Uh, you know, they're guys who are good friends. Brent Brennan can get away with that because Brent Brennan has won a Mountain West championship, right? Like, Brent Brennan can give you that confident air because he has something to back it up. Marcus Arroyo literally has nothing at UNLV to back that up yet. But the thing is... I don't know if it'll be good enough if he wins four games this year to still have that attitude. Well, it sh- I mean, it shouldn't be. if Because of Marcus Arroyo, if they win four games this year, in his third year as head coach, they're right back to where they were when they fired Tony Sanchez. I was about to say, I have them winning three. Right, like four wins this year is where the program was when Sanchez was fired and Arroyo took over. So, like, if they win four, that's right around what their win total is. That would sort of be... I guess an expected season, and I think people would rightfully so be like, oh, good job. You didn't win two games. But that would simply be, hey, it took three years to get the program back to where it was under the previous coach. And so the idea of uh, patting yourself on the back, moral victories or being satisfied or whatever it is, if it's just four wins this year, there's no reason Marcus Arroyo should have any arrogance if they walk out of here with a 4-8 and eight season. And obviously, if it's anything less than that, which could very easily happen, then we're probably talking about, is Marcus Arroyo keeping his job for the 2023 season? Because that becomes a very real possibility if they're not any good this year. Well, what we've seen thus far out of Marcus Arroyo has been generally an attitude that says, no, no, I got this. And if you question any of that, it's sort of like, you don't understand. Right? <laughs> Talking about the idea of clickbait with a starting quarterback, right? That, that if he doesn't name a starting quarterback, nobody else cares. Just clickbait. I got this. I'll have a starting quarterback. You have it so far. Uh, if you look at the way that they've dealt with um, this situation in particular with the, with the locals, it's the same sort of thing. So... I just think UNLV fans, such as they are and however many are left for football, deserve better than this. They, they don't deserve to have someone try to tell them that what they're seeing is not what they're seeing. Yeah, Ultimately, can you win? That's the only thing that matters for Marcus Arroyo. And if, if they go to a bowl game this year, uh, who cares if he's talked to a single high school coach in Las Vegas? That'll be a success. That'll be one of the best seasons UNLV's ever had, honestly, if they go to a bowl game. If they don't, then you're looking at a coach in three years who has accomplished nothing and a coach in three years that has done nothing to endear himself to fans and obviously to high school coaches in Las Vegas because these are quotes that high school coaches were willing to tell a reporter. Imagine what they actually think. Imagine the things they say when it's not talking to a reporter, knowing it could end up in a newspaper, in a story. Like, there has got to be such a low opinion of Marcus Arroyo among high school coaches in Las Vegas that's probably going to be a big problem for him at some point in the future. All right, coming up next, Jason Fitz joins the show. He plays the fiddle and is friends with Sarah Spain. And you are not. It's time for our weekly visit with ESPN's Jason Fitz. Good morning, Jason. All right. 
Important question to start here. We're giving away Luke Bryan tickets later in the show. The best part about having Jason Fitz on is I can usually just give him the name of somebody famous and he will tell us something great about them or bad, whatever. Uh, Luke Bryan, go. So the first tour I did with the Van Perry was um, I just started with the Van Perry, Fight Night Young, had just come out, and we were on the Tim McGraw-Luke Bryan tour, and we had like four feet of stage in the front. Nobody like had ever heard any of the songs. <laughs> Nobody was ever in the crowd, and, and Luke was blowing up at the time. Tim was already huge. Well, Luke's guys, like, they, they liked to at the time let loose and have a good time, and we were all business all the time, which should not surprise anybody. So at the time, I was doing the insanity workouts, you know, like the Sean T, like Team Beachbody getting shape workouts. But I like to do them after the show because you got all this time and it's like, hey, might as well be productive. So after our, our show, we go back there and we do insanity. And Luke and the guys thought that was funny. So they started setting their chairs up and they would drink beers and play cornhole next to us <laughs> while we were playing insanity so they could relentlessly mock us. And he could relentlessly mock my form on burpees. Like it was, uh, but, but yeah. Great show. Just, I don't understand the phenomenon with his voice. Like, I, look, I get that he looks great in tight jeans. He still sounds like Gomer Pollard things to me, but uh, great entertainer. So hold on. Did you at any point stop doing these insanity workouts while Luke Bryan drank beer watching you do it? No, no, of course not. No, no. I, like, look, I grew up a fat kid that played violin. I like. There's nothing Luke Bryan can say to me that's worth what this great girl said to me. So, like, going to have to do better than that, Luke. But, you know, he always, uh, always, they always found a way to make fun of the fact that, like, the number of times, I think it was the Texas State Fair we were playing, and we had to go to Europe right after that. Had to. We got to go to Europe right after that. But the, the singer, Kimberly, wasn't really happy with the set. So we drove all of our stuff through the Texas State Fair to a rehearsal place that we picked out. And while we were doing it, Luke's guys were again standing by the bus playing drinking games, getting just shmammered, and they were making fun of us the whole time. But we had it coming. We were sort of like the geeks. They were the cool kids. I like this Luke Bryan guy. He sounds fun. I would I would have done he the is. same thing, pulled up a chair and it's made fun time. of you the whole time. All right. On the Raiders, uh, they are 3-0 and in the postseason. They apparently dominated the Patriots in joint practice yesterday. Does any of this matter? Is there any reason for anything so far in training camp and preseason to be reason for optimism about the Raiders season? Training camp, no. Very clearly, let me say that loudly, I don't care about training camp um, or preseason. But joint practices, yes. And not this year, but last year, I went to as many people as I could that played and that did no organizations, and I said, hey, what should we really take away from joint practices? And the answer I got universally from everybody is the joint practices are actually more important than preseason games. Reason being when you're in a joint practice scenario, you're usually in it with the coach that you have a comfortable relationship with. You make determinations going into the actual practices on what you're willing to show each other, but you run more. Like, nobody wants to put anything on tape in any way that can expose anything in a preseason game. When you get to these joint practices, they're at least willing to try some wrinkles and they're willing to let loose a little bit. And in the process of letting loose, that tells you something. So, look, I... I Harry Douglas and I are going to Martin Hunt today. I, I, I think they're squarely out of the playoff picture. So this is the Raiders beating up on a non-playoff team in practice. But the fact that people that are there, that you know, even Patriot reporters that have watched Patriot practice for years and said, wow, this has been a thrashing, I think that does speak to the amount of talent, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. If you are doing that to the Patriots in practice without Darren Waller, it is a reminder of what I've been saying for six months. This is a top three offense in the NFL. 
Well, that leads right into what I was going to ask you about as a Raiders fan. And again, we're way into the speculative world here, but the lack of what we've heard other than one little comment about a hamstring injury is all we know. Uh, what's your concern level with the Darren Waller situation, whether that is about a potential injury, whether that is this is a quiet contract situation we're not hearing about. Are you worried about Darren Waller? So I don't think it's contract related because if you put the, the evidence together, I can't find how that how keeping any of that secretive would help Darren Waller. I, I guess you could say that maybe the negotiations are being done behind such closed doors, but for somebody that's battled injuries a couple of times over the last couple of years, I don't think that Darren Waller's camp would want the notion getting out there that he's injury prone. So as much as we're talking about injuries, I feel like somebody in his camp would have already leaked if this was just a contract issue. So that leads us to, is it a hamstring issue? And my God, y'all, if it's a hamstring issue, then my concern level is an eight on a one to 10 because hamstrings are tough to get to heal. And the fact that he's not out there in these joint practices after coming back for practice a little bit, like, that, that, to me, at least makes me nervous. I mean, if he's going into the season battling hamstring issues, then that's going to absolutely hamper his ability to be able to be who he can be, which will hurt this offense. You uh, threw out top three offense. If Darren Waller misses time, if he's got an issue and he plays, you know, eight games this year, does that change your top three prediction? Yeah, it's a top ten offense then, but it's not a top three offense. Like, this is this is just simple who's covering who, right? Like, so – if Devontae is going to take, you know, the attention of at least two people, which I think is pretty reasonable, if he's going to take the attention of at least two people, knowing that Josh McDaniels can scheme an offense, he's going to scheme Darren Waller on the opposite side or in some way that forces somebody to make a decision. You're going to follow Waller, you're going to follow Devontae. Now, I think Hunter Renfro is absolutely special as a player. I think the one thing we have to remember about Hunter, though, is that he runs these spectacular, beautiful routes that everybody loves to show you 52 times. But when you're running a route that requires you to make 15 different moves to get open, you need time. I don't know that I trust the right side of the Raiders line to give Hunter the, the time that he'll need early on to run some of those routes. So I think Hunter's production could actually be a little bit slowed while the offensive line figures it out because that's going to take more time. But Waller gets himself open immediately, especially if you're accounting for Devontae. So no Waller, now you're just accounting for two great receivers. That definitely hurts the production. In the college ranks, Jason, do you blink when you see the terms of Nick Saban's contract, or does this just look like the cost of doing business to you? No, uh, well, uh, so there's two answers to that. One, I don't blink at all because he's worth every penny of it for what it means for Alabama. I understand that. But I also can loudly say that Nick Saban might be the biggest hypocrite in all of sports, right? Like, if you are sitting here telling me, that you think name image likeness is killing competitiveness in the sport because it kills competitive balance. And if you're telling me that kids should be capped on what they earn, because my God, nobody's going to be able to compete. You answer this for me. How many schools can pay their head coach $11 million and the rest of the coaching staff, another $2 million a year, every single year. Like we're not sitting here talking about, well, how's UNLV going to keep up with those numbers and what's that mean for competitive balance in college football? So for the person that a few months ago was saying name image likeness could kill competitive balance in the sport, to take that kind of money and never stand up and admit that that absolutely is part of what destroys the competitive balance in football is at best hypocritical. And he's too smart for it to be dumb, so it's simply hypocritical. And if he's willing to stand up and admit that, then I have no problem with every dollar he takes home. Uh, Jason, let me give you a Darren Waller update because Josh McDaniels is talking right now. From Tashawn Reed. 
Josh McDaniel said he isn't concerned about the absence of Darren Waller, but said he didn't feel comfortable making a prediction about his status for the Raiders' regular season opener against the Chargers. Okay, so have either of you guys ever gone to a psychic at all? No, ever? God, no, I have not. Okay, <laughs> neither have I. But here's what I always say. I, <laughs> if I ever decide to go to a psychic, I'm going to take my most dumpster fire friend, the person that has absolutely nothing going for him, I'm going to make that guy go in first, right? And when he comes out in tears and says, my God, the psychic just told me I'm never going to get my life together. I'm going to die alone. Nobody loves me, and my life is just useless. That's a psychic I will go see every single week because I know that's a psychic that's giving it real, right? And the first time I hear a coach stand up in front and be like, yep, superstar player, mega concerned, probably not going to be there week one. We can't figure out what's wrong with this hamstring. I will, I will listen to everything that coach says from then on. But, like, I don't know what we expect from McDaniels at this point. Like, there's nothing he's going to say that we're going to believe. And to me, if, in, until we see Waller on the field for several days back to back to back to back to back, there's nothing but concern. So no matter what Josh says about, you know, not concerned, cool, right. Well, you know, uh, at the end of the day, I'll believe that when I see it. So the Waller situation goes back to ultimately – this team has so many weapons, right? But then you can't take advantage of what those weapons bring when they're not out on the field together, right? It all seems to work in concert. And we talked about the offensive line. You already mentioned that they have to have time. But specifically with Darren Waller, what do you think they lose in that offense? Is it about his ability to take defenders? Is it about the vertical threat? What is it with Darren Waller specifically that they lose? It's 12-yard crossings. I mean, that's the thing, like, I think this offense, for, for as much as the Raiders fans love the concept of 50, 60, 70-yard touchdowns, this offense is going to have a lot of plays that run between 7 and 15 yards in the passing game, and a lot of that's going to come from crossing. And if you are, if your entire secondary is worried about Devontae the minute he clears them out, that's going to create such an opening for Darren Waller to just use his size and frame to box people out and get himself 12 yards at a time. Like For me, in, in this offense, as it stands right now, I'm going to be the idiot that says, I don't think third and seven is that big a deal when you've got Renfro and Waller and you've got Devontae. Third and seven is a, is a makeable down. It's not what you want, but it's makeable. You start taking Darren Waller out of that equation, and now everything suddenly becomes much more clogged, right? Like, because the, the, the thing that Darren Waller has is, is what Kelsey has. Like, it's impossible to figure out how to cover it. And what, was, what is special about this offense is it's very Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey together, right? That's that's what happens. It's the reason that I am out on the Chiefs being the division winner this year. I think the loss of Tyreek absolutely dramatically impacts the production of Travis Kelsey. So, you know, conversely, you can't have one be as effective without the other. So you get rid of Waller, you lose chunk plays that are 7 to 12, 13 yards over the middle. All right, Jason. Uh, enjoy your insanity workouts with Luke Bryan. I hope you get to do that again in the future. You know, I'm I'm on to I, I, I did a little P90. Now I'm on the lift. It's the new one at Beachbody. You should check it out. You know, it's a little lift and high intensity. But in the meantime, uh, all, all your listeners should go watch the show. Just, I don't know, put in headphones and listen to Gomer Pyle. It's about the same singing. I'm just saying. All right. Get out of here. Jason Fitz from Bye. ESPN. We appreciate it, Jason. So, yes, my favorite noise. I absolutely love it. Coming up next. We'll get back into the NBA for a little bit with Kevin Durant staying in Brooklyn. I'm truly sorry. I am. I have let so many people down. I have lost so much love from people. But I have failed. I have failed to the front office of the San Diego Padres. I have failed to every fan of this city. I have failed to my country. 
I felt my family, parents, I'm really sorry for my mistakes. All of the sun, none of the fun on the Press Box Summer Edition featuring Adam Candy. Yesterday, the Nets put out a statement saying that they are moving forward with their partnership with Kevin Durant and focusing on basketball. We talked to John Von Tobel earlier in the show. He said that if you could guarantee that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are playing, you know, a full season and they're committed, that he would have them as a legitimate contender in the top four in the Eastern Conference. Uh, Adam, how likely is it that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving play a full season and are committed to trying to win a championship for the Nets? You know, I almost asked John Von Tobel this when we had him on earlier because we're talking about Kevin Durant, a guy who has missed significant time to injuries in many of his seasons. Kyrie Irving, who who knows what you're going to get for any reason whatsoever out of. And then Ben Simmons, who we haven't seen on a court for more than a year. So I don't have any confidence at all. I saw that the sportsbook number moved from 18 to 1 to 9 to 1 on the Nets. You're not getting me betting nine to one on the Brooklyn Nets because I have no idea when they're going to play. Okay, what would be a good total for Ben Simmons' games played this year? Good, as in what would the, would the Nets be happy with? No, no. Like what would like if you were if it was Adam Candy Sportsbook? Like what number would you want to set for the total on Ben Simmons' games played? Oof. 49 and a half. Okay. I, I was thinking it'd be something over half the season because it, it all, I mean, there's a very good chance Ben Simmons plays the first game of the year and is fine. Like that he plays the, I mean, nobody really plays a full season, but plays a full season basically. But at the same time, we haven't seen him play in a long time and he could also not show up or not be there or be in street clothes, whatever it is. He could just not play for a month or two or longer than that. Well, how seriously do we take Ben Simmons' mental health concerns? If we think that that was a ploy to deal with the Sixers, then you assume Ben Simmons will play a lot of games. If these are mental health issues of the level that we generally take much more seriously in 2022 than we ever have before, then you have to factor that into Ben Simmons' overall health. Now, he's going to get some games for rest. We know he's had back issues in the past. I don't set, feel comfortable setting the number any higher than that just because Look what we've seen from this Brooklyn team. We keep talking about, oh, wow, now we're all back in on it now, right? Oh, here we go. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and Ben Simmons. We did this. We did this with James Harden as the third guy. And then they didn't even play 20 total games together. So let's take the assumption that JVT threw out there that if you get close to a full season from Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and you know that they're committed to trying to win NBA games and a title. Do you agree with him that this is a legit contender and a top four team in the East? In the rosiest scenario, yeah. Don't you? I think so. I like going into it, even with that, I would still think they're below Milwaukee and Boston, that I would still put those two teams, you know, higher than the Nets in the East, but not far enough away that you couldn't see the Nets winning a playoff series, that you couldn't see the Nets beating those two teams on their way to the NBA Finals. So I think, yes, the the highest percent outcome for the Nets, they can win the NBA title, but I still think it's going to be really difficult because they're, I to me, at best, they're like the three seed in the East, which is a difficult path to get to the NBA Finals. 
So I'm sure there's a little bit of recency bias in me saying this, but I also truly believe it. We talk about top four and all these teams, and we mention all these Eastern teams in a cluster. Boston's the best of these teams by a long shot, isn't it? Like, I, I don't see how any of the other teams we're talking about, whether it's Milwaukee, whether it's Brooklyn, whether it's the Philadelphia 76ers, none of these teams are close to as good as a healthy Boston team, especially with Malcolm Brogdon there to help get them out of all of the stagnant sets they showed in the second half of games in the playoffs. Is Giannis not the equalizer if they play in a series that decreases that difference between the two teams? He decreases the difference, but let me ask you right now. If you can keep Giannis, let's say, to, and I say keep is in, <laughs> this is not the uh, the stat line you ever want to see. Let's say you keep Giannis to 30 and 12. <laughs> Do you trust that Chris Middleton's <laughs> going to pick you up? Do you trust that Drew Holiday is going to pick you up enough to win these games? Versus... Now you look at the Celtics. All right, if Jason Tatum has another disappearing second half, we've already seen Jalen Brown do it. Like, we've seen a guy like Malcolm Brogdon be able to do it. I, I just think they're a deeper team, they're, and they're a more talented team top to bottom. We have seen Middleton and Holiday have the games that you know help you win when it's not all about Giannis. So it's, it's possible, but again, when you talk about the likelihood of it happening, and especially when we're doing a seven-game series and you've got to win four of them, they probably have to do it at least twice, maybe three times to win a series. It becomes less likely. But, I mean, we have seen it. I mean, they won the NBA championship. Middleton and Holiday were both important parts of that, had big games that helped them win the title. So, it's to me, it, it's possible. I, I mean, I, I agree with you that Boston is ahead of Milwaukee. I think just that gap is smaller than you think it actually is. All right, so... Put it this way, then. In an offensive situation, just a one-on-one -on -one offensive situation, I would make you a case that Jason Tatum is as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than Giannis. I don't completely disagree with that. I don't think that's the craziest thing you've ever said. No, because Jason Tatum is a threat in more ways in an offensive set than Giannis is. Now... Who's the better player overall? I don't think that's all that close. Like Giannis' full game is better than Jason Tatum's full game. But when we talk about the playoffs and what happens when the half-court offense bogs down and what are you going to do to get a shot, I'm a lot more worried about what Jason Tatum's going to do to me on a clear-out than I am about what Giannis is going to do to me. All right, let me ask you one other question on this. Do you think more trades happen in the NBA now that the Kevin Durant situation has been settled, specifically Donovan Mitchell? Well, Fred Katz, the uh, Knicks beat writer for The Athletic, brought up a really interesting point to say there are now a lot of teams who are going to have assets that they were holding to try to make a trade for Kevin Durant that could get into the Donovan Mitchell sweepstakes if they want to. So I think the happiest man yesterday might have been Joe Sy, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets. Second happiest man's probably Danny Ainge. <laughs> I enjoy the idea of Danny Ainge seeing that statement on Twitter or something and being like, oh, good now all these teams can line up to to give me assets where's memphis where's miami where's all these teams that want to trade for kevin durant come get donovan mitchell instead i i am curious to see because uh obviously the donovan mitchell trade hasn't happened yet the knicks have been the team rumored quite often but will there be more teams right memphis was the last one that sham sharnia threw out right before the statement came out would Memphis be interested in going and getting Donovan Mitchell? Would they think that would make a difference? Or same for Miami or somebody like that. Or I guess Toronto at one point was uh, interested in Kevin Durant. Like, 
I'd be curious to see if teams, how much they're willing to go get Donovan Mitchell and how much they think he makes a difference, right? Like a team like Memphis, do they think Donovan Mitchell is the type of player that takes them from good fun team to legitimate NBA title contender?